0: Continue to make our way through the book of Genesis these Lord's Day mornings, and so I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the 20th chapter of that book, to Genesis chapter 20. We'll be reading the entire chapter. If you are anything like me, you've had some pretty embarrassing moments in your life, even shameful ones. But what has made those moments the more painfully uh, terrible is that. You knew better. You knew better when you did that thing. In fact, sometimes those humiliating and degrading moments were due to the repetition of sins, that you know you, you should have learned that lesson once and for all a long time ago. I cringe to think about the things I've done or said in the past, but I tell you as I read this history of Abraham in Genesis 20 I cringe more in the anticipation of the things I have yet to do the sins that I will undoubtedly commit against the lessons that I should have learned today but here is the question how shall You and I handle these deep failures in our own lives, yesterdays and todays, and the ones that we have yet to commit. On this point, like so many others, we learn from our father Abraham's life and example. Before we go to the word, though, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Abraham's God and ours, who has been faithful to him and to his children To a thousand generations of those who love you and keep your commandments, we we pray, O God, that you will visit us with that same grace, even here this morning, that we may hear your voice speaking to us in your word, that we may respond with faith and obedience and also with joy. For just as our father Abraham sinned against you, so do we. And yet you remain the same faithful God to him and to us to this very day and forevermore. Out of that faithfulness, we pray, visit your people now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed <coughs> toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. You remember that last time, uh, when we last saw Abraham, he was standing on the heights overlooking the Dead Sea Plain, surveying the landscape of divine judgment from that very same place that he had uh, stood, pleading with God for Sodom for the sake of the righteous in Sodom. We left him standing speechlessly the next morning, looking down on that city and on Gomorrah, and uh, where there was nothing left but the smoke like a furnace of ruin. It is from there that Abraham makes his way south into the territory of the Philistines, and Gerar in particular, perhaps in in search of some greener pastures for his flocks. And uh, as you already may realize, the Philistines, like most other Canaanites, would hardly even give a thought to killing a man and that to take his wife. And this Abraham knew full well, which begins to explain why it is Abraham says what he does in verse two. And Abraham said of his wife, uh, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought upon me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me these things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that, that you did this thing? Now, Abraham is going to reply more like a schoolboy who has been caught in a lie than like the father of the faithful. Abraham says, verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Now watch this. Watch for the barbs in Abimelech's voice as he now turns to Sarah while Abraham's standing right there. To Sarah, he said, as Abimelech said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and healed also his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham, you've done it. Again, we want to shake our heads at Abraham, partly in in disbelief, partly in in disgust, partly in shame. Look how far God has brought you, Abraham. He's, He's called you out of Ur. He's called you out of the pagan land and set your feet to following the path after him to a land he would show you. You've been saved with Sarah from the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt. For the very same sins that you were taken captive then that now you've committed again? Since then you've bravely and faithfully worshipped God, set up altars to him in pagan lands? You've seen the smoking firepot of God's presence passing between the halved animals when he cut the covenant with you? You've courageously and mightily vanquished Cater Laomer and, and his allies and And fought against all odds to free all of Sodom and Lot and his family. You faithfully repulsed the lucre of the king of Sodom. And on the other hand, have been blessed by the king of Salem's benediction. By Melchizedek, the priest of the most high God. You've witnessed with your own eyes the the total devastation of Sodom and Gomorrah under the wrath of God. And... You've received the wondrous revelations and the promises of God, even recently been been told personally by God about the son who is going to be born to you and Sarah by name, Isaac. And now this. Abraham, what are you thinking? In so many ways, Abram's been a paragon of faith. At breakfast yesterday, my mother asked me what the sermon would be about this morning, and I said, the faithlessness of Abraham. What? She said it couldn't be. He's the picture of faithfulness in the Bible. He's, She said, the, the poster boy of faithfulness. And he is. He is the picture of faithfulness in the Bible. And he is remembered that way by Paul and the writer of Hebrews. But being the very picture of faithfulness even in the Bible does not exempt a man or woman or boy or girl from lapses of faith and even moments of downright faithlessness. Such was this moment in Abraham's life, and that's the first point this morning, the faithlessness of Abraham and of us. Despite the faithfulness of God, despite the mighty demonstrations of God's power and of his Veracity in Abraham in recent days when faced with the same fear for his life in Gerar as he had faced, you remember, way back in Egypt, that they would take his wife and, and kill him. Now he falls into the same faithlessness again, the same fear of man, the same distrust of Almighty God's promises. Look, God has just told Abraham himself that he and Sarah We're going to have a child, a son, together. What more assurance could he possibly need? Could Abram possibly want concerning the inviolability of his marriage? That God himself would insure it and protect it, guard and defend it. But no, some 20 Years after he committed this same faithless blunder back in Egypt, now he's doing the very same thing again. Now, we almost understand it, don't we? We can we can almost understand why he would do that in Egypt, when Abraham was still relatively young in the faith, when he was still wet behind the ears in the things of God. But now, as a as a veteran saint, this, this man who had seen his, God's mighty works firsthand, had, had talked with God directly, conversed at him at his very table. I say even this man lapses into faithlessness and fear. Derek Kidner in his commentary notes that the Critics of the Bible think this passage inauthentic, that it doesn't belong here, that it's, it's a phony, because of the repetition here that it makes of a similar situation that you remember back in, in Egypt when Abram and Sarah told the very same lie back there and ended up uh, with Sarah in Pharaoh's harem. But as Kidner observes, it's easier to be consistent in theory than under the fear of death. Well, there are several points at which Abraham fails, and that miserably, for one, we are disappointed by his quickness to trust in himself and in his own schemes instead of trusting in the Lord. It's an old ruse, old to them anyway. Since their departure from Ur, he's instructed Sarah to tell the people that she is his sister, which is Partly true, she is the daughter of his father, though not of his mother. She's his half-sister. But, but why does he go back again to this deception? Why carry it forward? Isn't this a tactic he should long ago have discontinued? This is the scheming of an idolater, not a man of God. Another way we're disappointed in Abraham is by his mealy-mouthed response when he's caught. When Abimelech confronts Abraham with his sin, rather than owning it outright and confessing and acknowledging his fault, Abraham takes another route, a route he learned, by the way, and the rest of us men have learned it very well, too, from our father, Adam. Dodging and blame-shifting. Watch him in verse 11. I did it because I thought... There's no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. See what he's saying? It's not my fault. It's your fault. It's their fault. It's essentially what he tells Abimelech, which is, in a sense, a slander against Abimelech. Now, Abimelech's no believer. He's a heathen king. But neither is it true that there is no fear of God at all before them. The terrible, biting irony, in fact, of this passage is that Abraham, I mean Abimelech rather, in this account shows at least some reverence for God, while Abraham cowers, trembling behind his wife, jeopardizing her very honor and their very marriage. Not to mention the seed which was to come from them. But he isn't finished with trying to pass the buck for his deception. If Abimelech isn't to blame, then then God is. Verse 13, when God caused me to wander. It's as if he's saying, if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't be in this mess at all. What is that if not virtual blasphemy? And most of all, we find Abraham's behavior deeply disappointing because it's the expression of faithlessness, of distrust, and the promises of God, particularly the promise that, that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, would have a son within a year. It's as if God had never said a word to him, as if God's word and promise mattered nothing. What makes all of this together all the worse is that Abraham's poor behavior is placed immediately alongside Abimelech's generally honorable conduct. Abraham is indifferent to his wife's honor while Abimelech is concerned for her reputation. Abraham shows no concern for his nation, the very nation that God said he would establish through him, While Abimelech's first thoughts are of his people, of his nation. What have you done to us? He asks in verse 9. And then, while Abraham pays little heed to God's word, Abimelech cannot move fast enough to obey the Lord and do what he has said, rising early, verse 8, to meet with his servants. All told, We are more than ready to wag our heads at Abraham to wonder whether he could really be a man of God at all. How, after all, could anyone so close to God act so foolishly, so pridefully, and so selfishly? I say we're ready to say all of these things with regard to Abraham until until we consider ourselves and see in Abraham's face our own. Fact is, faithless as Abraham is here in Gerar, you and I are just as faithless from time to time in our own lives, and that not only in the early days of the faith. You've acted in selfish and worldly pride. You've not trusted in God's promises as you ought. You've doubted God. You have sometimes acted more out of fear than out of faith. And so have I. We have our own sad departures from the path of faith and righteousness. And the old man of sin still clings to us. And truth be told, we sometimes indulge that old man. We even give him free reign from time to time in our own lives. Even the great apostle Paul had to say at the end of his impeccably godly ministry, Remember what he said. I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want, that I keep doing. Wretched man that I am. You know what it means, as I do, to come into this house week after week, month after month, year after year, and to confess the very same sins that we were confessing 10 years ago. And then some sins, just when we think we've mastered them, rise up with new power to draw us again into the same thing as it did our father Abraham All of this could become quite depressing to us, should we let it become so. It's the saints' bed of of thorns that yesterday's temptations vanquished are far too often today's sins indulged. But, dear brothers and sisters, let your fits of faithlessness drive you not into introspective depression, No, as you grow in the sense of your own weakness and your faithlessness, let it drive you instead to God's faithfulness, which is the second point this morning. Having considered Abraham's faithlessness and our own as well, let them set you considering even more closely and carefully the faithfulness of God, and he is faithful. Over and again, he has proven his faithfulness to his saints. God is faithful to his children even when they act faithlessly. He continues to be faithful and faithfully to be our God. Look at his faithfulness in the passage. First of all, as a faithful father, he is faithful to discipline. His children. When we sin, when we, when we fail Him, He loves us too much to leave us in unfaithfulness. Instead, He chastises us as is needed out of His love for us. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Now, watch the discipline as it, as it falls on Abraham in a way perfectly. Fitted to his crime since his sin took the form of fearing heathen men, now a heathen man will be the instrument of rebuking him and what a what a shameful moment now think about this this is the the father of a multitude who outnumbers the the grains of sand on the seashore and the, and the stars in the sky. And this man should re, be rebuked, should be read the riot act by a heathen, pagan king. That God would go on to would speak to Abimelech about this. And while the the account leaves us with no indication that Abraham had heard a word from the Lord on this point, is even further indication of the Lord's rebuke of Abraham's sin. But notice now that God does not make Abraham pay for his sin in a retributive sense. The full consequence, the, the punishment for Abraham's sin, falls not on Abraham. But upon another, upon the Lord's Christ, so much later. The discipline of God, Christians, when it falls on you, is not payback. It's not retribution. It's not getting you back for what you've done or even causing you to suffer the full consequence and punishment of it. It is the loving spanking of a father a loving father who seeks nothing but the best for his son and for his daughter so it is when god disciplines us even if that discipline takes the form of letting us feel a little bit of the sting of our own sin he does so out of love he does so because he deeply loves his daughter his son Now you'll say to me as you go on in the passage, well, some chastisement, Abraham still walks away with a prince's reward, a thousand pieces of silver along with sheep and oxen, oxen and servants and Abraham's choice of where he wants to live. Yes, that's true. And that's the Lord's goodness. But can you not imagine that every time Abraham's eyes fell on one of those silver coins or on one of those oxen or sheep or servants that his face must have turned red and his eyes fallen and his heart reminded of the faithlessness of those days in Philistia. Even this is a mark of God's faithfulness to discipline his children out of love for their souls. Second, notice God's faithfulness to deliver. He would not leave Abraham to suffer the consequence of his sin. No, God moves upon Abimelech and in his providence keeps him from approaching Sarah sexually. He preserves Sarah's honor and at the same time preserves Abraham's life. Not only to deliver now, but in fact to restore Unworthy Abraham to the position of prophet. God moves, even to the position approaching that of a priest, making it necessary that Abimelech and his people be healed. How? By Abraham's prayer for them. Isn't this wonderful? And isn't even it more wonderful that This same principle God applies to Abraham, he applies to his children, to you. God does not lose his patience with you, even though you try it and try it and try it again. He does not cast you away in a fit of rage. We dishonor him and yet he does not forsake us. He does not abandon us to our foes. God's gifts, they're not taken from us either. Though we would, in a moment of faithless blundering, give them away freely. We do not lose his good gifts. They remain ours because they were free to us in the first place. God's gifts are not taken from us because they were free and we could do nothing to merit them and so we can do nothing to demerit them. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So God is faithful to discipline us. He is faithful to deliver us. And then third, God is faithful to forgive us. Now what is the essence of forgiveness? It is this, that if I forgive you, I will never remember your sins against you Again, I will not bring your sins back to your mind, I will not bring your sins back to my mind. That is the fundamental definition of forgiveness. I will put them away and not hold them against you. That's what faithfulness means. Well, isn't that exactly, precisely what he does with Abraham? There is plenty to be said about Abraham in the rest of the Bible from this point forward. Paul writes about him in Romans and in Galatians. We read about him in the book of Hebrews. But do we ever once read of Abraham's failure in Gerar again? Abraham will be called the father of the faithful. Abraham will be called the friend of God. His life will be held before us in several ways. His example as the quintessence of true, saving, and living faith. But we will never hear about Gerar again. Why? Because God knows how to forgive. He says that he removes our sins from us as far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Your flesh will bring your sins back to your memory and your own failures. And and you know that Satan loves to do this. He loves to whisper into the ears of the saints about their past failures, attempting to weigh them down with the grief and the, and the, and the sadness of their past sins when they should be running fleet-footed in the freedom of forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. And there are more than plenty of people, as you well know, who are more than willing to bring your past sins back to your minds. But it will never be God. It will never be God who brings these things back and throws them in your face again. God reckons you not by your vices, past or present or future, but by his grace. When he looks upon you, he looks not upon your blackest, most sinful self. When he looks upon you, he sees Christ. When he looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, the robes of Christ's righteousness in which you are wrapped. He sees you as you are washed by the cleansing blood of the Lamb. He looks at you as he looked at Abraham in Christ, even at his weakest. And then fourth, in God's faithfulness, he is faithful to save. He has been faithful to accomplish his salvation all along through flawed instruments like fickle men's hearts, promising to Abraham a son and to Sarah that he would follow through on that promise regardless of Abraham's faithlessness. It's God who sees these promises through to their fulfillment regardless of the foolishness and the wickedness even of his best saints. And the same is true for salvation and its particular application to you and to all who believe and trust in him. It is God who has elected you from the beginning of the foundation before the foundation of the world. God who has acted in history by sending his own son born and placed in a manger and then nailed to a cross. It is God who applies that salvation to a man or woman, to a boy or a girl by his own spirit, so that it is true, absolutely true, as this prophet says, that salvation is of the Lord. It's been said that the election of sinners. Their redemption by the blood of Christ, the faith by which they believe in Him and receive the forgiveness of their sins, the perseverance by which they continue in the faith and love of Christ, it is all God's gift. And His work, salvation is of the Lord. And the only thing you and I contribute to that equation, the only thing we bring to the table, is the sin from which we must be saved. Praise God for this lesson, dear flock, that you and I, so faithless, so oftentimes devastatingly faithless, God remains ever and always faithful to his promises and to his children. Is it not good to serve a God such as this? He remains the sovereign shepherd of his sheep even when we doubt his ability even to care for us. And though we sin against him faithlessly, yet faithfully he remains a God to us now and forever. To God be the glory and to God alone. Amen.